You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. Michael Bailey is an American psychologist, behavioral geneticist, and professor at Northwestern University. He's best known for his work on the etiology, or origins, of sexual orientation. He maintains that sexual orientation is heavily influenced by biology, and that male homosexuality is most likely inborn. Dr. Bailey's 2003 book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, gave an accessible and intimate account of male sexuality, with a focus on gender nonconforming boys, gay men, and male-to-female transsexuals. The book was nominated for an award, which was later retracted, from the Lambda Literary Foundation, an organization that promotes gay literature. Aside from the legitimate critiques of his book and Dr. Bailey's theories, the attacks spilled into the realm of the egregious as a small group of radical trans women viciously went after Mike, his reputation, and his family. All of this was documented thoroughly in Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger, which ultimately exonerated Dr. Bailey of the accusations against him. Today, Mike explains how he got interested in working with sexuality during a time when it was quite taboo in academia. After publishing research on male sexuality, Mike began encountering transsexual women who wanted to talk about their experiences with him. He came to realize that some male-to-female transsexuals were nothing like what he'd expected. He went on to study this further, wrote his book, and soon after, all hell broke loose. While Mike is certainly no contrarian, he unapologetically tells the truth, and he's committed himself to doing his job well as a psychological researcher. This was a great discussion, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mike Bailey. Howdy, Stella. How's it going, Sasha? It's going great. We are very excited to roll out another pioneer here on the program, Dr. Michael Bailey. Welcome to Gender A Wider Lens. Thanks for having me. It's great to see both of you, and I've been looking forward to this. Yes, so have we. We're we're really thrilled to have you. Of course, we know one another because of our work in ICGDR, which is the uh, Institute of Comprehensive Gender Dysphoria Research. But of course, I learned about you uh, prior to our work together through reading your book. And of course, as we started to dig into the world of gender and sexuality and orientation, you are a really important uh, figure in all of this. So so where where should we start? I was thinking we could like hear how you got into this area of interest, maybe like when you were a baby, Dr. Bailey. <laughs> back, um, in, back in the last century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so I suppose the um, first relevant part of my biography might be in uh, college. Uh, and... Uh, I was um, a math major in college, and um, there were two problems uh, with with that for me. And w- one of them was that at my university, Washington University in St. Louis, um, at that time, they had some of the most brilliant uh, math students in the uh, world, and um Knowing them just a little, I knew I was not in their league. <laughs> and the other thing is that uh, uh, higher math is just so abstract. It didn't connect with anything uh, that really resonated with me. And I, uh, in, in my junior I think it was, uh, I took a course uh, with this history professor uh, and it was called the history of Freudian thought, and uh, I just was, I, I, you know, I thought I was bowled over by uh, the course. I I found it fascinating, you know, Freud, uh, you know, 
hidden thoughts, sex, all that, you know, I, I, and I, I, uh, decided, uh, boy, that's, that's for me, that's the area I want to go in. Uh, and, uh, I, I should say I've, uh, lost all respect for Freud per se. He was a terrible scientist and so on, but that's, that's what, um, got me to go to graduate school in clinical psychology. Uh, and while I was in graduate school, uh, I took a course on human sexuality and, and, um, I really, I, I, you know, that, that was, had various things that were really interesting, including an idea for my, uh, dissertation, uh, which was about a theory of male homosexuality, a biological theory, uh, and conducting that research, uh, I discovered um, I really liked uh, working with gay and lesbian people uh, more than I liked working with mentally ill people. Uh, and uh, it was a wide open field at that time. So again, this was in the mid 80s mid to late 80s when I was doing my, um, finishing up my graduate degree. Uh, and, and it was part um, open because uh, it was a very controversial field and people were steering clear of it. I think also there was stigma studying homosexuality. Uh, I think that a lot of um, uh, researchers worried that people would uh, infer uh, things about their sexuality if they were studying that. Wait, what do you, sorry, what do you mean by that? That people would infer things about their sexuality? They, for example, think that uh, men studying homosexuality were gay. And, you know, oh, that, they're, they're, uh, and, you know, um, I don't actually, I've grown not to care about that. I'm, I'm not gay. Uh, I, I wish people would assume I was gay because of the way I dressed or the way I danced, uh, <laughs> but they never would because, uh, I'm a terrible dancer. Uh, uh, and in fact, and it's interesting, uh, and probably relevant to our field, uh, there is uh, a correlation between interest in sexual orientation research wise and, uh, having um, a non-heterosexual orientation. I would say maybe half the uh, researchers on homosexuality are not heterosexual. Uh, and it's also true with gender dysphoria. I think, you know, there's an elevated rate of uh, gender dysphoric or transgender individuals who study it. Sure. Could I ask, um, you, you did your dissertation on... Um, the biological component of of uh, same sex attraction is that right? Yeah. So it was a more specific uh, t topic. Uh, there was a theory that male homosexuality was caused by uh, prenatal stress in the mothers, and this uh, theory was put forward first by a German scientist named uh, Gunter Derner. Uh, and he had these incredible uh, uh, data reported in uh, these obscure journals suggesting that, for example, mothers who uh, had bad experiences during World War II were much more likely to have gay sons. Uh, and... There's also, believe it or not, there's uh, work on uh, rodents. If you stress pregnant female rats, their male offspring will tend to show uh, a, a pattern of female uh, sexual behavior. They won't mount other, they won't mount female rats. They will uh, lordose, they'll stick up their rears. Uh, so there is a biologically plausible um, story there. Now, uh, long story long story short, I found no evidence for this uh, 
theory, and uh, I don't really believe Derner's uh, uh, results anymore. Uh, but I also, I did find some things I found, uh, it wasn't the first one, but I found that uh, the uh, gay men in, in my study reported an elevated number of gay brothers and I also had lesbians. They reported uh, um, an elevated rate of lesbian sisters. And so that's where I went next. I, I did uh, twin studies of uh, male and female sexual orientation and found uh, some evidence uh, for a genetic contribution. That is, um, there seem to be genes, uh, or at least I, you know, I didn't, Back in those days, we had no way to study DNA directly like people are doing now. But using patterns of resemblance between different kinds of relatives, you can infer uh, genetic contributions to traits. And I, I found um, evidence in, for both male and female sexual orientation that genes were part of the story. Not the whole story, but part of the story. And when did you get first interested in the the gender world? Yeah, so I uh, had had it in the back of my mind uh, that it would be really interesting to study that for various reasons. And, you know, I had never uh, met a transsexual person before. Uh, but after uh, one of our... Uh, research studies got some press. This, this study actually was relevant. Uh, Ken Zucker and I, in 1995, we published a review paper showing uh, that there is a pretty strong relationship between being a gender nonconforming child, that is being a very feminine boy or being a very masculine girl, and later sexual orientation. Uh, in fact, most very feminine boys uh, seem to grow up to be gay or bisexual adults. And although most very masculine girls grow up to be heterosexual, uh, nevertheless, uh, their rate of being lesbian or bisexual is quite elevated, you know, uh, let's say uh, 30%, which is way above expect, expected rates. So um, when we uh, published that, I think maybe the, the New York Times or maybe it was the Chicago Tribune did a story on it. And I was contacted by a transsexual. Uh, and... This person was eager to tell me uh, her, so her, she was a male to female adult transsexual who'd been through complete sex reassignment surgery and so on. Uh, she was eager to tell me all her thoughts and um, I arranged to meet her and uh, she got me totally into uh, studying and thinking about uh, transsexualism. And uh, she really opened my eyes. And uh, I, this, this story uh, has a sad ending because this was uh, a transsexual who I focused uh, my book, at least the third section of my book, which is about transsexualism, on uh, her, her real name is Angelica Celtica. In my book, she's Cher. Uh, but we became friends, and and I think I I think you know I treated her well, and uh, she was a good informant. Uh, eventually, we had a falling out. She turned on me, uh, uh, and you know I can tell you all the gory details later. But for now, let me just uh, tell you how she opened my eyes. Um, she, so I had the same preconceptions about transsexuals that everybody does. And that is that they are, uh, in her case, 
Uh, she was born a woman trapped in a man's body and that she was always very feminine and that she'd be very feminine as, as, uh, as a woman, as a trans woman and so on. And that that is why she transitioned. Well, it was completely not that way in her case. And she was incredibly open and basically, uh, she transitioned, it was very clear, because she had an erotic uh, fetish for uh, acting like a woman and having a woman's body. Uh, growing up, uh, she was not at all uh, masculine as a boy or, or as, a, as a man, because she, she was a man until... Uh, I don't know, I think well through her 30s. I think maybe she transitioned around age 40, may have been a little earlier. Uh, but she had intense uh, sexual preoccupation with cross-dressing. Uh, uh, you said growing yeah. up she was she was not at all masculine. Not well, at not all. Feminine. I'm sorry, oh, did, yeah. I misspoke. Yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you for correcting me. Yeah. I, really, please do. I yes, hate when I do I that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Growing up, she was not at all feminine as a male. She was, uh, in some ways, uh, much more masculine than I. She, uh, as a male, she learned how to work on cars, <laughs> car mechanic, and, and so on. I can't do that. Uh, and and talking to her, you know, uh, she would. So uh, one thing that she liked to do when she was a male is put on masks that uh, masks of women. Uh, and she talked about how you would put them on a, like you put on a hockey mask, which I, I don't think uh, typically uh, very feminine uh, males would use that uh, analogy. And had you heard of the term autogynephilia or was no, she just kind I, of explaining? I had, I had not ever heard of autogynephilia, even though by that time I was friends with Ray Blanchard who had discovered autogynephilia. And um, I, don't, I don't remember all the, the steps between learning from Angelica and actually learning about the scientific literature, which was already there. What I do recall very clearly, though, is being embarrassed for myself and for my field that so few people knew about autogynephilia. And they didn't because it didn't fit the narrative. That's, that's the first reason. And the, the second thing is that people are squeamish about sex. And if you're not going to go there, if you're not going to talk about sex, if you're not going to be willing to listen to how some men have this intense sexual fantasy about having a vulva and breasts, you're not going to be able to understand autogynephilia. And by that time, which was the mid-90s, uh, autogynephilia had become the leading reason why natal males got sex reassignment surgery, at least in North America and Europe. Uh, it was... Now, you know, at that time, transsexualism was uncommon. Uh, at that time, uh, the, the, the rates that uh, got mentioned and estimated were about 1 in 20,000. 1 in 20,000 males would get a sex change. And for natal females, the rates were lower. <laughs> you know, how far we've come yeah. in uh, uh, less than 30 years. Yeah. And what brought you to write the book? Was it your relationship with Angelica and your conversations with Angelica or were there other yeah. factors? I, I, so I remember uh, the day that I decided to write a book. I mean, f first of all, I, I, I think it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I mean, really, it's fascinating. But the day I decided to write the book was, uh, it was 1990. Six, I believe, uh, and I had gone to a uh, Barnes and Noble 
book presentation by a therapist uh, that you may have heard of. Her name is Randy Etner. Uh, and Randy, Randy Etner is a gender, she's part of WPATH. She's, you know, and anyway, uh, she was, she had written a book about, uh, helping transsexuals find their true selves or whatever. That may have been the title of the book, True Selves. I'm not sure. But, uh, anyway, she was just giving the, the standard narrative. Uh, and I knew that that did not apply to these people. Now, um, I, I should say that uh, Angelica, uh, the autogynophilic transsexual that I have been talking about, is unusual because she had formed close relationships with uh, several of the other type uh, who Blanchard uh, calls homosexual male or female transsexuals. These are natal males who are sexually attracted to men. And they are the kind that are more uh, familiar, at least uh, with people's uh, narratives. They're uh, feminine from day one. As soon as they start behaving, they behave like even more feminine than the typical girl. And these are the, the, the kind of prototype in your mind of what you imagined Angelica's childhood exactly. would have been like. But as it turns out, you learned otherwise. So you're saying Angelica befriended them. Well, she knew them, and then she introduced me to them. Uh, and she, she also she uh, befriended them in part because she was uh, sexually attracted to several of them. They did not have any interest in in her because they're attracted to masculine men, <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I I really feel like I was very lucky in seeing these two types side by side. If you have that experience, you will say, "How could anybody ever think that they're the same thing?" And uh, you know. You know, it's like uh, for the current uh, audience, uh, Caitlyn Jenner and Jazz Jennings, you know, watched a video of each of, you know, they're not the same. Uh, And so I knew that I uh, had uh, learned something fundamental. I knew that uh, people in the world did not know this except for uh, very few scholars. And, and I should say, you know, I, I was already attending uh, academic sex conferences. Uh, and yet even among academics at sex conferences, this was not known. And furthermore, there seemed to be um, resistance to the idea it made uh, uh, academics, uncomfortable or even angry to uh, consider this uh, autogynophilia theory. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person, you all probably know this uh, in your limited interactions with me so far, I'm the kind of person who uh, doesn't mind, uh, I don't know, throwing truth in people's faces in an uncomfortable way. Uh, And, uh, you know, I don't like to do it in order to hurt people's feelings or, you know, I don't like to hurt people, but it does bother me when I feel like people aren't doing their jobs or when when people are trying to uh, put forward something that's not true, which, which they were. I think you're, you're among, among a like-minded company. Yes. Yes. That's, that's why we're here. (laughs) I want to ask you a question. So, so you start to realize that there's this false narrative, which you saw with your own eyes does not really represent everybody who transitions. And you're realizing a lot of clinicians don't know about this. And also I'm assuming by this point you would, you, you're in touch with Dr. Blanchard, who had 
kind of discovered autogynephilia. Were you guys like talking regularly and saying, you know, we got to let people know about this? Like, I I know you can't remember the exact order of events, but I'm just kind of curious, were you on your own or were you and Dr. Blanchard kind of like discussing these issues together? So Ray and I were already friends for, I don't know, at least two or three years before I met Angelica. And I I guess I, I had no you know, we 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 were both interested in uh, research on sexual orientation, uh, but I, you know, because I really hadn't done any transsexualism research, I had no particular uh, need, I guess, to know about Ray's autogynephilia research. Although I am sure, almost certain, I had said some ignorant things to Ray and, and he kindly ignored them or, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, so w- one, one thing that, um, I don't know if you two know, uh, I run a, uh, a listserv that will seem, the idea might seem quaint to your, uh, or foreign to your young, uh, listeners, uh, that's an email list where uh, people who want to discuss a certain range of topics will, uh, you know, they, they somebody posts, everybody gets a copy of the emails and so on. So uh, since the mid-1990s, I've run uh, a sex research listserv called SexNet. And uh, and Ray and, and Ken and... Uh, Ken Zucker and and many uh, top sex researchers have been on there. Many remain on it. Uh, And I started discussing autogynephilia there uh, and, you know, kind of pushing it. Uh, And, you know, there was controversy there. There there were some transsexuals on it, even then, who didn't like it. Uh, there were uh, um, Milton Diamond, Mickey Diamond, who's a, a famous uh, sex researcher. Who uh, he's the guy who um, followed up on David Reimer, the John Joan case, and showed that the outcome wasn't so great. Uh, and he he became something of a a hero to transsexuals and. Uh, he didn't like autogynephilia because he, he wanted to push the, you know, the standard narrative, basically. Uh, so he didn't like it. So anyway, we, we've had uh, years, decades of discussion of autogynephilia on there. It, it just, the, the you know, I um, got to know more autogynephilic persons. So Angelica is a transsexual uh, I also got to know um, a cross-dresser who also contacted me independently of Angelica who would like to go out to lunch dressed as a woman uh, and, uh, you know, always when we would go out, everybody, it, she wasn't fooling anybody, uh, but it was uh, gratifying to uh, him. You know, he lived as a man. Uh, uh, at that time, uh, didn't get a lot of chance to cross dress and go out, but always liked to do that. That person eventually, um, put his foot down with his wife and said, you know, you must, uh, accept this of me and go out with me while I cross dress and so on. Uh, so there, there's also interesting, um, Stuff regarding autogynephilia and uh, and wives and and uh, relationships and so on. I feel like I feel like we have kind of have to talk about this now because yeah, I'm fine. It's, it's we it's, did. It's, it's <laughs> avo- people avoid it, and and it's yeah. a thing. It's important, and you know Nothing. what? I feel I feel guilty uh, that in my book I kind of. I, I kind of wave my hands or 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 I, I I think I let 
uh, transsexuals off the hook a little too easily. And, and uh, one of the, one of the wives of a of an autogynophilic transsexual contacted me, and and we became uh, acquaintances, and I, I respect her greatly. Uh, and you know, she she said, "Look, you know, this person I, I didn't know this, and this this my husband, uh, you know, used a big part of our savings. Uh, you know, spent hours per day on uh, chat rooms or looking at uh, pornography and so on. You know, sounds like he became a lousy husband to her." And there are these stories, you know, I, I think sometimes uh, the uh, the husbands uh, are decent about it, but sometimes they're not. And uh, there's a, a wonderful book um, uh, about this, and, I, and I'm not going to be able to remember her name, but... Uh, it's a it's a woman who was married to uh uh a rabbi i think stella probably has uh, it I in think that I large have a, bookshelf yeah. behind it's, it's, her. it's brilliant yeah it's, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful book and you should you should find the title and and let we your will and we'll put it in the show because it's, yeah, it's definitely yeah and and this was a case where somebody was mistreated Incredibly uh, badly. Never, what's that? He treated her incredibly. He treated badly. her, yes, yeah. and the and the whole family. I mean, I, there was one occasion where, uh, after he had transitioned, he they had a daughter together, and, and uh, he played dress up, dress up with the girl with the, with the daughter, uh, which was creepy. To the daughter as well as yeah, uh, to them. abusive. And, uh, like yeah. it's yeah. I think that story of the transmitters is coming it, out. You know what I mean? By, as by the way, I, a, I remember her name. It's Christine Benvenuto. Benvenuto, I think, is the last name. And, great. Um, we'll yeah, I think Stella, links. you've mentioned this I before. Have, we'll include yeah. it again. Yeah. 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 Yes. So um, I, I, yeah, go ahead. So so the book came out in two thousand and three. And you were ready. You knew there'd be resistance, I'd imagine. And you were like, okay, here we go. And how did it well, go? Well, when you say I was man, ready, uh, yeah. that, that's, a, that's a little cream. bit of an overstatement. I can imagine. Uh, so I, I had uh, written this part of the book. I wrote that part first, even though it was the third part of my book. And I assigned that to uh, my undergraduate human sexuality class for a couple of years prior to uh, publishing the book. And uh, I put it up on my website so that they could uh, read it. And uh, people outside the university also discovered that section and started contacting me. And I, I got a, quite a range of responses to it. I, I, I got some people who said, wow, that's really interesting. Or, you know, my, my favorite kind of response, and I've, I've had many of these, I finally understand myself. I, I, I've never, I always knew it was strange. I always knew that I didn't fit the narrative. I finally understand myself. Thank you. Uh, that's my favorite response. And then I, I also got, uh, you know, you really don't know what you're talking about, that you are really mistaken. And then, you know, I got a couple of, or a few just rageful responses. How dare you, you know? We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast we work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender questioning children and young people. 
If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. For anyone who hasn't read the book, give us a, an overview, because, I mean, you kind of follow the, the stories of several individuals, and you kind of talk a little bit about theory, but it seems, it's like a very personal, it's a page turner. I mean, I read that book in like a couple of days. It was super entertaining, but for anyone who hasn't read it, can you just kind of explain, it's called The, the Man Who Would Be Queen. Can you just tell the audience, what is this book about? I, I will, and I, I also want to give you a link to a place where people can download and read the book for free. You don't, Great. you can't buy it anymore. So you might as well. Uh, so oh. anyway, uh, so there are three sections of this book. The, so the book is, uh, I guess, broadly about male femininity. Uh, the first third of the book is about little boys who want to be girls. And uh, there's a little boy named Danny who is uh, more than based on. It is somebody who uh, I actually indirectly knew. I knew through uh, a student of mine who was his babysitter. Uh, You know, I did change some details to hide his identity. Uh, But um, so little, little boy who wanted to be a girl, uh, it's part one. Uh, the middle part is about gay men and ways in which they're feminine. Uh, and there are ways uh, in which they're feminine, thus queer eye for the straight guy and, and so on. There's also ways that gay men are quite masculine. So in their style of uh, sexual interactions, like interest in casual sex, in, uh, you know, looking at pictures or movies of, you know, explicit sex and, and attractive people. That, that's a very male kind of thing. Uh, and then the third part of the book was the controversial one, and that was about transsexuals. And I talked about the two kinds of transsexuals, and I, I talked about these people I knew. Uh, Angelica, who I named Cher for the book because she liked Cher, uh, and uh, the other uh, transsexuals who she had introduced me to, who I also renamed. And uh, it was the third part of the book that um, provoked the controversy and it was a tremendous controversy. Uh, This, this was a huge deal back in 2003. Uh, And this was uh, organized by um, an academic named Lynn Conway, uh, who's an electrical engineering professor at the University of Michigan, I think she's retired now, uh, and a very brilliant uh, and famous and I think quite wealthy uh, uh, transsexual. And by the way, I I, uh, will say that electrical engineering is perhaps the most masculine occupation in the world. My dad is uh, an electrical engineer, by the way, okay. and I will attest to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, but but she uh, organized uh, on the internet uh, outrage, said that my book would someday be compared to the Nazis uh, and uh, you know, organized, started organizing petitions against my publisher. Uh, you know, my book was actually nominated for uh, a Lambda Award. Lambda was uh, an award for GLBT. Uh, and, you know, people thought it was compassionate and uh, interesting and, and 
it was. Um, but uh, she hated it uh, uh, so much that uh, they they um, they organized a petition to get it withdrawn from uh, Lambda consideration, and and that was a successful uh, uh, movement. It, this kind of controversy also involved someone named Andrea James, if I'm remembering correctly. And there was oh, like a yes. third main, like there were some vicious characters that just <laughs> relentlessly went after you yeah, in yes. a very personal and, and, manner. Yeah. Yes. And Andrea James is a, what, uh, as a, you know, I am trained as a clinical psychologist. Uh, and so I'm familiar with the diagnoses and and so I believe that I can uh, uh, confidently label uh, Andrew James as a piece of work n o s right piece of work n o s yes that's not exactly. otherwise specified for all our listeners it's like a throwaway p o w n o s yeah keep going. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, she did things like so. I had uh, on my webpage at the time, I had put pictures of my then young children on there. The back back then, I don't know. Sometimes people did that. I did that. Uh, you know, I don't think people do that much anymore. But you know, proud of my kids and you of know. course, yeah. And yeah. and you know, she took pictures of my then young kids. Uh, off and 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 put uh, words underneath that she said were similar to what I had said in my book, uh, which, though they were not. And you know, I'm I'm not gonna. Uh, I, I I remember some of the things she said, but you know, in China, in, like something like uh, although the the language was much rougher, drew. Uh, my son, uh, a young male prostitute, you know, uh, uh, you know, and then talked about uh, there are two kinds of kids in the Bailey household, like two kinds of transsexual. Uh, one type was were sodomized by their father. The other type were not sodomized by their father. It was it was so, vile, like you're laughing, yeah. but I read about the accounts. They were awful. They were implied your child abuse. It was, it was like the lowest yeah. of the lowest. Yeah, and I, you know, I was, um, I was stunned. I, I, I mean, I, I thought it was, you know, boy, that's creepy. But I, more than that, I, you know, didn't want my kids to of course have to see that but of course they did find out about it and uh my my daughter who's younger uh she was disturbed my son was mm-hmm. angry on her behalf mainly mm-hmm. but I, I will say that uh, my daughter uh when she was in college on her facebook page she she had a uh, so <laughs> You, you you may have to bleep this out. I don't know what your language is, but but uh she on her about thing, cock starved exhibitionist. Uh <laughs> and then in parentheses Andrea James. Yeah. Uh, she was kind of own, owning you know <laughs> and I was I yeah. was really proud of her as like, you know, sticks and stones kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, they, so they also uh, they tried to the, the worst part of it is that they organized um, various things to try to get me in trouble at my university, and some of them uh, did. At least they caused uh, me to be investigated by my university. They they lodged a complaint at my institutional review board, which is the uh, uh, ethics approval board at my university. Uh, and they, so they also uh, filed complaints at the Illinois Board of Psychology saying that I tried to practice psychology without a license. I'm not licensed, but I I was not practicing psychology mm-hmm. without a license because I wrote uh, letters to for some, uh, some transsexuals so that they could get their surgery. And on the letters, I said, I'm not licensed, but in my yeah. opinion, this person is uh, 
Uh, yeah. So anyway, that, that, that was all quite stressful and it did in fact derail me, um, to varying degrees for a few years. I was not as productive, uh, as I had been. I, I was, uh, embittered in various ways. I, I really felt kind of, uh, hung out, hung out to dry. Now, uh, Ray Blanchard and Ken Zucker, were always my friends and Paul Basie, uh, uh, always my friends and very supportive James Cantor, you know, uh, but I, I would say the academic world was not, uh, very supportive. I think, I think that they were actually kind of frightened by, uh, people like Andrea James, uh, but uh, then I uh, met Alice Drager through Paul Vesey. Uh That was in the, gosh, I don't know, uh, mid-2000, like, I don't know. I don't remember. Let's say 2005. And uh, Alice, um, I think, was initially skeptical of me, thought maybe I was not a nice person or, or whatever. But, but um, I think she came to the uh, conclusion that I was not an awful person. Uh, and she was interested in my story. And uh, long story short, she uh, wrote a, a very extensive academic article about uh, the controversy related yeah. to my book. And she poured through, I mean, dozens and dozens of documents and records and emails. Like, she did a lot of research in order to come to her conclusions, which basically exonerated you of all of these accusations. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. And to get the timeline, it was, uh, from what I can see, it was about 2003 you released your book. In 2008, she wrote the article. And then some years later, 2015, she released the book. Um, Galileo's middle finger. So this this is a long drawn out, I would imagine, incredibly impactful, massive episode in your life, really. Yeah, it absolutely was. Uh, and, you know, I, I think if you looked at my um, research output, you would see a, a dip <laughs> during there. Although, you know, I still did get some good work out there. Can uh, I ask, then, but um, less. yeah. Um, like it's transactivism is very well known now, but back then it wasn't as well known. Was this just a very small group of very, 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 um, obsessed activists or, or was it always simmering there and that you, you, you poked it really, but by, by talking about autogynephilia, the, the discomfort with autogynephilia was already there and I knew about it. Now, what I didn't know is how angry some of these people would be and what links they would go to to uh, try to suppress the idea and punish me for writing about it. Uh, now, when, something else I didn't know. So th there's this very interesting and poorly understood association between autogynephilia and uh, interest in technology and computers and expertise in computers. Now, that made them very effective. I know. On and computers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's right. Uh, yeah. But I, I think that uh, because of that, they, the, they gave the impression of being a much larger group than they really are. You know, I, I gave some uh, talks even after the controversy started, some public talks. And you might think based on, uh, you know, what what you read and, and what you saw on the Internet, that there might be crowds of angry transsexuals. But there was never a crowd of angry transsexuals. I, I did give one talk at UCLA where I think maybe four or five transsexuals who were hostile showed up. Uh, but other than that, I think maybe the, usually there were none. There might've been one <laughs> at, yeah. at the other ones. And 
Uh, I'm dying to ask, what did you think when you first heard about ROGD? Well, but, but, sorry, oh, sorry. I want to get there, but I, I just wanted to say something before okay. we do this, because I'm thinking about the fact that um, we released an episode several weeks back where we interviewed Debbie Hayton, a transsexual woman I know who of her. Yeah. admits to having autogynephilia and spoke very honestly about the, the difficulty it imparted on her family and the difficulty in the marriage and all this stuff. And we, of course, heard from a lot of people who described themselves as trans widows who most likely had interactions with their, you know, ex-husbands who probably fit into this kind of uh, cluster of personality traits like the Andrea James, like the individuals who attacked you, perhaps, and I'm just, I'm interested if, if you can say anything with your background in psychology about this overlap between, in some individuals, autogynephilia and perhaps like extreme narcissism or some kind of cluster B personality. Is there any research on this or can you yeah. just speak so, anecdotally so, about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm glad that you're bringing this up. And here here's what I think. Uh, the... Autogynophiles who put their families through this are not a representative group of autogynophiles. We are seeing a combination of autogynophilia and narcissism. These are people who think they deserve, <laughs> you know, to have whatever they want. There are, I, I have met, uh, other autogynophiles. Uh, I've met some who have no intention ever of uh, putting their families through this. I've met others who um, who are not ever going to get married because they're not sure uh, what will happen. But um, there's this uh, we, we call it and research a selection effect that that is you can't assume that the husbands in these trans widow uh, stories uh, are representative of autogynophiles because they are the ones who put their wives through this right the, the, so um, I don't believe that autogynophilia per se I don't think there's any reason to think that it's associated with narcissism. And in fact, uh, you, you know, there's a lot of uh, self-revulsion among autogynophiles. They don't, they hate the masculine parts of themselves. To be sure, it's a, it's a very weird sexuality and, uh, and it doesn't work very well for other people. And by uh, so when they involve when they involve other people, mm -hmm. it's not going to typically work mm -hmm. very well. I mean, what what you know, many women who like the idea of having sex with a man who's wearing lingerie and imagining that they are a man penetrating them, you know, or uh, you know, and and a lot of another thing, um, a lot of autogynophiles have. Uh, uh, interpersonal autogynophilia, where they they actually like uh, interacting with men, uh, sometimes even sexually, but at least you know, kind of pretending they're on a romantic date and so on. It's they're not at all attracted to a man. Yeah, just they're, the idea man, of being wanted yes, like a woman, exactly, the validation exactly. of that sense of exactly. what woman means. Yeah, I exactly. get it. I noticed you called it a sexuality as opposed to, is that right, uh, rather than a paraphilia? Is that a well, position paraphilias are sexualities. Okay. Just, uh, uh, so I do autogynephilia. Autogynephilia is a paraphilia, although, you know, we could get on into a really technical uh, discussion of what is a paraphilia and it mm -hmm. doesn't mean anything. I think mm -hmm. it does. And, and autogynephilia, I think, is a prototypic uh, paraphilia, but it's also uh, a sexuality. I, I, I think autogynophilic males, uh, it's, 
it is a very powerful uh, constraint on their sexuality that they, you know, they can't escape. It's uh, a compulsion is how Debbie Hayton described yeah. it on our program. Well, it's a compulsion, but so is uh, heterosexuality. You know, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, you know, not to do TMI, but I'm a pretty vanilla heterosexual guy. That's a compulsion. I have no choice. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I'm into. You yeah. know, if, if you tried to get me into cross-dressing or into having sex with men, no, thank you. It's not going to work. Yeah. I, I, I am very constrained. But mm. lucky for me, most of the world, um, you know, kind of fits in. And also, you know, let's not pretend that even kind of typical heterosexual people don't have all kinds of difficulties <laughs> uh, in sexuality. You know, men and women are different and our differences don't always work out that well, <laughs> you know, uh, but nor, nor do, you know, gay men, men and men, you know, yeah. they're not yeah. different from each other, but... I'm their sexuality causes them all kinds of problems. Sex is difficult. Oh, you tell me. <laughs> and, and there was, uh, do you think it's div- it, like AGP kind of arrives, let's say, post-puberty, pre-puberty? Have you got any kind of thoughts around this? Is it, you know, because there's a lot of conversation yeah. on that point. Yeah, so um, it is generally first evident uh when boys are in adolescence and they're they're getting a sex drive and and it's it's quite fascinating actually because there's no way they learn this from other people but they typically learn uh that they enjoy wearing their sisters or their mothers lingerie in private looking at themselves in the mirror and masturbating that for 90% of autogynophilic males, that's the first step. However, Ken Zucker published a fascinating case report of a little boy, I think he's three or four, who's brought to the clinic because he is wearing his mother's panties and getting erections and masturbating. And he told me, um, boy, I, I think that this is in the case report. I'm going to tell you anyway, uh, that in discussing this case, he learned that the father of this little boy was a secret cross-dresser. I have heard a lot of stories of father and son cross-dressing. Uh, it, it is, uh, there are only isolated case reports and anecdotes, yeah. but I believe that there is strong genetic component in this. Wow. Uh, and uh, and we, we, we can't, it's hard to see how, you know, I can't be, um, Sure, but based on these uh, case reports and stories I hear, I, I, I just believe that that is true. Well, Mike Bailey, it was a really interesting conversation. We are so glad to have had you on. I had a great time, and uh, yeah, so uh, I'll try to send you the link to, to the free version of my book, uh, and everybody should read it and, and have uh, uh, their parents and their children read it too. Yeah, and, uh, you're right. Read, read it to your five-year-olds before bed. Yes. It's a nice and, bedtime story. And, and send Andrea James an email about how much they enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, I definitely will. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. I hope you Thank have you. a fantastic rest of your night. Thank you. You too. You too. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, 
You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 